Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast. <laughs> wow, again, I, I love know. it. Like, what what happened? <laughs> First of all, who are we listening to? We're listening to myself, Ayan, mm-hmm. Lauren, mm-hmm. Anya. Mm. I just realized I was meant George to be paneling this week. Okay. I'm so sorry. No, that's okay. I'm like I totally just got forgot. into the seat. It's it's my fault. I made myself too comfortable. No, that's good. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast mm. on 3CR Community Radio. Um, what was the weather like? The weather was it was beautiful. <clears throat> it was nice. It's yeah. so nice and mild. If you are a hay fevery person, though, go and get a Telfast and then put one in your pocket for later because mm. you're going to need it today. Telfast is great. I stuck my face in a jasmine bush and now I'm, I regret <laughs> everything. It smells so good, but it's not worth it. Mm. So you, you stuck your face you stuck in your it face? to smell it. Yeah. Huh? I'm, it's like a metaphor. Like I, okay. Uh, oh, yeah. okay. I got very close and personal with the jasmine bush. Yeah. Right. I was like, why is she sticking her face in... But you know what? We're a non-judgmental <laughs> we are, group this of is people. A safe, it is a safe space. Space. <laughs> what you want. <laughs> All right. So what did everybody get up to on the weekend? Mm, I watched a really good documentary. Um, it's called McQueen. Yeah. And it's about... I watched the, that too. Yeah. It's about Lee Alexander McQueen, the, the British fashion designer. Mm. I know nothing about fashion, but I can appreciate a good film and um, would recommend. Mm. Mm. What about you guys? I watched the football. Mm. I did. So did you. I did too. You texted me and said, where is Fergie? The Black Eyed Peas are playing. (laughs) I really get into football. I I have to say, I really enjoyed that game. Mm. And I think I enjoyed how happy, like, because I got the train from Footscray out to Hawthorne. Mm. And the platforms were all just packed and there was just people everywhere. And like, semi annoying because you know just like lots of people around you but also oh my goodness everybody's mood is so jubilant and Mm. just like everyone is just really happy and it's a really nice day to be out and about Mm. Mm. yeah Mm. and eddie mcguire's face oh that was classic i know but then you had the flip side of that and julie bishop was really happy and you were like i don't know i'm so yeah Yeah, i'm so contented yeah yeah what is that, the better of two evils or the mm. worst of two evils? Mm. Eddie's worse. Yeah, Eddie's worse. Uh, yeah. Definitely. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. it's a tie. Let's it's, yeah, actually, <laughs> as I said that, I was like, tie. yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, I did watch that documentary mm. as well. Um, I watched it on my birthday on my own. Oh, just it's a light, It's not as sad film. as it sounds. No, that's nice. I actually had a really good time. Solo movies are the mm. best. Solo movies on your birthday can, you know. Mm. It can be a bit, you know, sort of like yeah. all by mm. myself. <laughs> but um, don't be <laughs> please don't, don't. I will I finish know. it. You, you're not <laughs> capable of doing that. But no, I loved, I loved the documentary, especially it's beautiful. His um, 
his like working class background mm. and I loved loved seeing his family at mm. his shows and stuff mm. and you know it's so funny because when he first started out so before he did the name change and everything as you know mm. he was on um like the UK's or London in UK's version of um Centrelink, I don't know what they would call yeah, that. He was on the doll, yeah. He was on the doll. So when he would do interviews, he didn't show his face because mm. <laughs> he was afraid to. They would show yeah. the lower part of his body. Wow. Because he's, he's, yeah. he wasn't making a lot of money. And the, this is the beginning, the first few shows. So that was interesting. I was like, wow, the struggle. Mm. But yeah, really good. Oh my God. Mm. I'm not a fashion person, I'm not either. But I can appreciate a, a rebellious streak. Like he just mm. went in and just did what he wanted and didn't really care that all these highbrow people didn't like his designs. Mm. Um, and that I appreciate. Yeah, but it like oh, it's quite a sad story though. It just made me wonder if you want to be a genius, maybe maybe you have to suffer. Mm. Oh my gosh. I'm putting on a song. I'm putting <laughs> please, on a song please, before please. our first interview. I, you've just broken my <laughs> broken my little heart, Anya. Okay, we're not going to go with the. I don't know. We're not going with. That. We're not going to listen to um, heartbreak tunes this morning. Let's put on some Rihanna. Mm. This song is called Consideration. A little bit of a language warning, but like mild. Um, it features the remarkable Scissor. Enjoy. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast. You're listening to myself, Ayan, and with us in the studio, we're so thankful to have him in the studio, is Jacob from the Public Housing Defence Network. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Jacob. Good morning, everyone. So, Jacob, the Grand Place is the latest housing estate to be targeted by the Public Housing Renewal Program. Can you firstly tell us what the program is about? Okay, um, so the Public Housing Renewal Program is um, something that has been, you know, drafted up by um, the state Labor government, um, and it's what it's being marketed as is uh, essentially a plan to refurbish and redevelop um, nine public inner city public housing estates, of which Grand Place in Brunswick West is one of them. Um, but the issue is. It's a bit of a it's a bit of a misleading um, title, public housing renewal program, because mm. you know they're saying that there's going to be kind of a ten percent increase in public housing, etc. Um, but the main problem with the program is it's implementing this sort of uh, sort of salt and pepper kind of approach, and so basically they're going to be demolishing um, the estates, uh, redeveloping um, houses on their st- um, on the sites, but they're going to be a mix of private and public dwellings. Um, and one of the issues with um, building private apartments is they're going to building, um, they're giving property developers, you know, access to this public land that should remain in completely in public mm-hmm. hands, um, and um, they're giving it to private developers to build some private apartments. Um, and now this is where it gets a bit tricky, and this is where the state government has been a bit confusing. So there will be some public housing on the land, um, but what's not clear is, you know, how much of it will be a pocket and it's going to be like a 10 they're promising a 10 percent measly increase but the problem yeah. is there's going to be a net decrease in housing so for example there'll be um more two-bedroom apartments and less free um for sort of bedroom apartments that, that were previously before and there's a lot of families that live in these estates um that you know need um three to four bedrooms and so there's um, no guarantee that they'll have a right to return when the redevelopment happens. Um, and the other issue is, you know, by building private apartments on what should be public land, they're essentially selling off parts of 
of land that should be remain in public hands and should never be, you know, sold off. Yeah. So it's not really about how many houses will remain public or private. It's the fact that it's private land and it's being sold off. Like, that's the big it's issue. It's public land that's being sold off, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so the Kensington Estate was one of the first communities to be affected by the renewal program, mm-hmm. followed closely by Carlton Estate, which I'm from. In terms of activism and agitation, what are community organisations such as yours um, doing differently this time around? Well, I guess um, a bit of a context is the fact that, um, um, from my memory, although I wasn't really involved politically back then, um, there wasn't as much opposition um, to the whole Carlton and Kensington redevelopment. Um, a big difference um, with our campaign is we've actually formed you know, a bit of a campaign, uh, active campaign that's organised numerous rallies, um, demonstrations, um, did door knocking um, to inform public housing tenants about what has actually gone on and held a number of public forums. So I guess a big difference in our strategy is we're actually much more consciously aware of um, what the program entails and that's also based on the fact that there has been research done on the Kensington and Carlton estates which basically found that uh, there were big, um, I mean the research of sort of Kate Shaw, uh, academic at University of Melbourne, basically found that these redevelopments um, were basically a big handout to pro- um, private developers and also the experiences of actual residents um, who live in um, Carlton um, and um, Kensington, these redevelopments um, actually, you know, contributed to more surrogation because one of the things I've heard from, you know, um, people, um, public housing tenants who live in Carl, who lived um, in, in Carlton and Kensington is um, when they built the private apartments, they basically sort of, they're sort of like sort of barriers and around them. So like, you know, the private apartments are all really securely tight tight and you know all the public housing zones are much more accessible it's sort of like it creates this clear sort of social segregation where you know mm. there's a private apartment nice private apartments over there and there's my public housing over here which is like you know considered yeah. a lower class right. so the i guess the, the the way they sold it in the beginning was that like you said the whole um what was it what did you call a salt and pepper approach which is sort of like social mixing. And even the ideas that informed social mixing, sort of like if public housing live next to private tenants, that somehow their situation would improve mm. because of their proximity to um, mm. private houses. Well, I think an important kind of point is um, if the Liberal Party were going to um, do a public housing self, they will just go and hand over the land and say, yep, have all the land private developers to build whatever you want on it, whereas I think the state Labor government um, puts more of a sneaky kind of self-privatisation kind of approach where, you know, they privatise parts of it mm. um, over time and then they hand, and then there's also an issue of handing over um, some of the public housing estates to be managed by community housing organisations instead of having it maintained by, um, by the government, and, um, which means that, you know, tenants have less rights and that... Um, you know, rent costs could um, are potentially more expensive under community housing when it's run by a community housing organisation as opposed to a, um, as opposed to the state government. Mm. And speaking of the residents, um, how do you mobilise a community who have legitimate fears that if they do speak out, that you know they may be put into uh, they may be relocated to places where there's the services aren't the best, or mm. there's that fear of like, oh, I will get into trouble. 
Okay. Um, now, it's a bit more complicated than I think because I don't. Act, I think there is a bit of a fear of residents of speaking out, but I think the state government has actually has an approach of not um, scaring the public housing tenants into intimidation, but actually confusing them. Um, and mm. so there's a lot of confusion um, about the program um, that the state government is basically pushing. In fact, a public housing tenant in Broadmeadows called me yesterday because he, um, he he initially called. Um, uh, Martin Foley's office, and they said to him, "Oh, we're not selling off the public housing mm. estates." Uh, and then when I gave him an explanation of the uh, what the actual program entailed, he was like, "Oh, yeah, that is actually a self." And so, okay, so what the public housing defence network has been doing is we have adopted approach of because we have public housing tenants involved in our network. Um, we have an approach of trying to work. Um, with residents um, who do want to stay and, you know, to b- play the role of supporting them as much as we possibly can. Um, we're not, um, you know, f- going up to... We're not door-knocking on public housing estates and saying, you know, that you should be you should be forced to stay here or should, you know, resist. We're basically playing the role of, you know, informing um, the public housing tenants of what is actually happening um, and it's, you know, it's up to them what kind of action they want to take and if they want to take an action of um, actively resisting or refusing to leave, um, then that then the public housing defence network will stand with them. Um, but I guess the complicated issue is one of the things we have to uh, be sensitive about is a lot of the public housing estates are actually quite run down, um, Grand Place in particular. So there's a mix of people who actually do want to um, probably relocate to another estate. Um, there's, but there's also a mix of people who want to stay because there's been a community developed there mm-hmm. and you know they don't want to leave it. Um, and But there's also another issue in the past that we've had that the state government, um, before this whole public housing renewal program was voted on and tabled at in the parliament, um, um, the Department of Housing had sent around um, workers to basically force tenants on the different estates such as Walker Street, um, Abbotsford Street in North Melbourne and Grand Place um, to basically sign relocation agreements without, um, you know, without, you know, without any sort of explanation on, you know, what, what, what yeah. I mean, and so it was basically forcing tenants to relocate before the whole public housing um, estate was actually sold. Was essentially this whole program was tabled in the Parliament, and of course the community um, legal centres took a very strong stand against this. Um, and so the public housing defence worker played a role of um, working with the community legal centres to organise a number of um, you know workshops and meetings, um, legal meetings to inform tenants of what their actual rights are, and that they actually didn't have to sign a relocation agreement if they didn't want to. Yeah. Um, so yeah. yeah. So I guess that's where the Public Housing Defence Network comes in. Um, they're holding a meeting to discuss election strategies. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us um, what that is and what's happening? Okay, so um, the aim of this meeting is um, we've organised our previous sort of activities have we've organised a number of rallies. I mean, one of them has been on. We've organised one rally at the Flemington Estate. Um, we've organised at least three to four rallies, or probably three rallies actually, on um, on the Northcote um, public housing estate. Um, and we've also organised a number of actions here and there. We're also trying to play the role of um, establishing sort of residence groups. Now, the purpose of this meeting is we want to inform the broader community um, about the public housing renewal program. Um, and we want to build a uh, 
a bigger, a broader campaign of opposition to this program because right now we're coming into the state election and um, the state Liberal, uh, Labor government, I mean, are uh, not talking about this at all. Um, in fact, I think it's quite clear that they, um, they're not actually planning on implementing um, the renewal program until after election. So part of this meeting is going to be about bringing people together to inform, you know, um, the broader residents of Moreland. And there will be another meeting organised by another housing a- action group in um, Darabin, in the city of Darabin at Northcote Town Hall two weeks from now mm-hmm. um, to uh, basically have that same purpose of, you know, informing the um, broader public and also getting them involved into taking action against this. And so some um, one of the ideas that um, the Public Housing Defence Network has is we want to potentially call a big rally um, in the lead-up to the state election um, with all the support of all the people who um, are against this program, um, you know, to come together and sort of build up the opposition against the, the program to put the pressure on the state government. Perfect. And when is that exactly the the more recent, well, the latest public meeting. Oh, so the public meeting is going to be this Thursday on the 4th of October um, at 7pm at the Brunswick Town Hall. Um, and we feature a number of speakers. We've got two politicians and we've also got Professor Libby Porter um, and the Moreland City Council Mayor and also we're hoping to have a Grand Place resident. Perfect. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Jacob. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law. 6pm Tuesdays. Ruminations, 3CR's Rooming House and Homeless Persons Issues Program, featuring information on health and housing services, as well as live local guests, artists and performers from our unsung community. Join us at 12pm on Thursday on 3CR 855am. Good morning. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with Ayan, Lauren and myself, Anya. I have a couple of community announcements for you, but before that I just wanted to um, mention that our very own Lauren was on Monday breakfast yesterday as a as a guest. I had so much fun. <laughs> they are so um, organised. <laughs> <laughs> so are we. I know, but I was really in awe. There was like this moment where they were like one minute over time mm. and they like knew mm. and made up for time and I was so impressed. I wonder what that feels like. I know. It was really nice. Mm. Um, anyway, yeah, it was lots to- of fun. Everybody should listen to Monday Breakfast. I will, yeah. I haven't mm. yet, but I will. So back to community announcements. Um, Done by Law, which is the federation of CLC's radio show on 3CR, is holding its annual fundraiser. It's it's not a person per se. Well, they're holding the <laughs> sorry, <laughs> they're holding the fundraiser this Friday, the fifth of October. 
Doors open at 6.30pm. The trivia starts at 7. It's happening at the Fitzroy Town Hall. Tickets are $30 per person and you can get them on the Eventbrite website. Um, I think we're all going, so see you there. On the 6th of October, which is this Saturday, um, from 1 to 4, there's the Legal Observer Training by the Melbourne Activist Legal Support um, which is aimed at people who are interested in learning the basics of legal observing, how it works, what it can be used for, and why it's important for social activists. Um, it, the event says that legal observing is suitable for all persons and practicing lawyers and law students are strongly encouraged to attend. It looks like it's sold out, so mm. too bad if you haven't got a ticket because... I reckon I message have. them on Facebook. Yeah, but yeah, I think you can email them or message them and I, they can make some... Um, and mm. we also have a community announcement that is for... 3CR Brecky. Mm. We um, at breakfast are trying to boost our Radiothon um, fundraising amount. And so we are holding a fundraiser on Saturday the... Oh, gosh. Hang on. 13th. 13th. Thank you. Saturday the 13th of October at 6pm at the Loop Bar, which is on Maya's place in um, the Melbourne CBD. And we're showing a film. You guys are more familiar with the film than I am, Anya. It's called... Life in Waiting. Life in Waiting, and it's about the resistance in Western Sahara. Mm. Um, and we've got Kamal from the Western Sahara Association um, awesome. doing a panel after the film. So, mm. yeah, it looks really good. The mm. new bar is accessible, both yes. wheelchair and bathroom, so that's important. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Tickets are $15 um, waged and $5 unwaged. Yes. So we'll see you there. And now we just wanted to play a pretty short video from a Tuesday Brecky favourite. Um, I think maybe we'll just play it and then we can talk about it afterwards. Mm-hmm. This is a fantastic moment to take Me Too forward because I think the whole ethos of Me Too, which was started by the black feminist activist Tarana Burke in 2006, is to put the world on notice about the destruction, just how destructive patriarchy is. And I think that what we're witnessing now, what we witnessed from Anita Hill 27 years ago, and what we must continue is the total and utter destruction of patriarchy. I think what we witnessed in in the elevator today uh, in the Senate is that we must defy, we must disobey, and we must... Uh, d- uh, disrupt patriarchy at every turn. We must make patriarchy fear women. And I think what we've been seeing since Tarana Burke began Me Too in 2006 and since it became so global last year when white actresses took it globally is that, you know, first of all, a reminder that when black women warn us of these things, as Anita Hill did 27 years ago, as Tarana Burke did in 2006. The world doesn't pay attention. America doesn't pay attention because white supremacy is in power. But when white women finally begin to understand that white supremacy and patriarchy hurts them personally, this is when when they begin to pay attention. So I think this is a great moment to tell white American women who in their majority have been voting for the GOP, you must join forces to disrupt, disobey and defy patriarchy and make patriarchy fear women to understand how damaging it is to women's lives. Um so that was Mona El-Tawi, who is um, an Egyptian-born feminist, transnational feminist. If George Maxwell was here, she would tell me she is a transnational feminist, and she is. Um, and she – oh, bless you, Ayan. She wrote a book called Headscarves and Hymens, and she, she writes a lot about um, non-Western feminism. Anyway, I thought that was a really interesting video. Mm. No. Oh, 
Sorry. I'm sorry. I just couldn't hear myself for a sec there. <laughs> Panic. I'm like, where's my voice? Um, no, this is interesting. Did you see, I don't know if obviously you both would have, have seen it, but I'll just describe it to our audience. Um, there's a picture of Kavanaugh mm-hmm. and then he's got all these like women mm-hmm. behind him and they, they, they all look, they're all sort of scowling. Mm-hmm. And initially when that picture went viral, people mm-hmm. thought the women were sort of like, you know, upset or, um, frowning at him or, or put off mm-hmm. by him. But then it turned out that they're all supporters. Mm-hmm. So one of them is his wife. One of them is like, so they're all in his camp or most of them wow. are in his camp. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting because everyone thinks um, patriarchy is just men, mm-hmm. but women are agents of patriarchy as Absolutely. well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and that's, I think, I felt like this video was really, um, it kind of brought up everything that we were trying to talk about when Me True was more in the news. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess Kavanaugh is a good time to be bringing it up but that um it seems like white women don't comprehend the link between white supremacy and patriarchy um until it directly impacts them or one of their own Mm. and all of a sudden everybody's like oh my god this is happening and like like mona was saying 20 years ago anita hill was saying yes this happened to me um mm. and even the way it was framed because anita hill i don't there's a documentary that i think both of you should check out i watched Mm -hmm. 15 minutes of it and I got distracted mm-hmm. as you do mm-hmm. so it's a documentary that's sort of like behind the scenes of what happened during that trial and mm-hmm. where she's at now so it looks at it, it talks about because her face during those trials was very like um, she had kind of like a poker face mm-hmm. and she talks about why she, you know how important it was to not let them see her um, upset, not mm. let her, not let them see her uh, looking weak, I guess, mm. um, so to speak. And then with the woman who testified against Kavana, I forgot her name. Doctor Ford, yeah. Doctor Ford, Betty, is it? No, Christine, Ford. Christine, Christine Ford. Ford. Where did I get Ford, Betty? <laughs> mm. <laughs> okay, wow. So um, yeah, and how during this case, um, this trial, she's crying. She mm. looks vulnerable and. That somehow her that kind of femi- that kind of woman or that kind of feminist or that kind of vulnerability mm. people can sympathize with that, mm. even though it's mm. it's yeah. pretty much this similar things have happened. They were both sexually mm. harassed by men in power, mm. and, and just the dichotomy between who is seen as vulnerable, who isn't, yeah. and mm. what happens. It, even I hate to tie this back, but that movie where the woman. She's like, I think I ate my baby. Oh, sorry. Oh, Lindy Chamberlain. Mm. Yeah, her face as well. People were sort of like, she's heartless because she hasn't shown any mm. emotion. And thinking about, you know, are we more believable if we show emotions? And if we do show emotions, but then as- emotions are policed so badly. Yeah. I mean, Serena Williams loses it one time mm. and didn't even lose it in the way that we usually understand losing it. Mm. Shows emotion one time and is publicly vilified. Like, how do you, which is better or which is worse? Yeah. Like, we're screwed either way. If we show emotions, mm. we're too um, vulnerable. We're not objective. We're not rational. Mm. If we don't, well, she's cold-hearted. Mm. Like, where, you know, she's not even a woman. She's not a, you know, where's her fem- Where's her femininity and all mm. that? Anywho, so, um, yeah, just so you know, 
patriarchy is out here killing all of us, literally. Yeah. Um, CSAs? Yeah. You got to remember, Nainox a special day for us, fellas. That's a reminder who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcasts. Happy Nadoff! Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast. You're listening to um, Welcome Back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. I love that I had to repeat that. Um, you're listening to myself, Ayan. We have in the studio Lauren, Anya, who is desperately trying to find us a song by. Um, what's <laughs> no, her name? I found it. Our friend Sia. Yeah, our favorite Sia. Mm. It's called The Greatest. Have you been a patient at Monash Health? Then we need your help. Because we care for patients from so many countries speaking so many different languages, we need your help to make the patient experience better. To make a real difference, register to be a consumer advisor. Visit the Monash Health website, monashhealth.org. Monash Health is a 3CR supporter. Spring into Gardening is back this October. Hosted by Gardening Australia's Costa Georgiatis, celebrating sustainability and all things green for one day only. Featuring free workshops and demonstrations, hands-on kids' activities and market stalls to help with planting and preparing your garden for summer. Spring into Gardening, Sunday, October the 14th at Victoria Gardens, Paran. Go to stonington.vic.gov.au for more details. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. We're going to another song now. This one is chosen by our very own Ayan. It's called The Weekend. It's by Scissor and it's from the album Control. Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're gonna have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty now. One, two, nitty-gritty now, yeah, boom. Nitty-gritty, hoo-wee. Right down to the real nitty-gritty. I did not need that coffee this morning. (laughs) 
You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with Ayan, Lauren and myself, Anya. And it's time for Alternative News. It is. <clears throat> Anya. Yes. Um, so we thought we would <laughs> talk about the current situation in Singapore in regards to the campaign to repeal an anti-gay law. So a bit of a background the repeal 377A, 377A being the section that criminalises um, sex between men, regardless of whether it's con- consensual or not. Um, this repeal 377A campaign was launched in 2007 um, and it was very widely unsuccessful, but it did push LGBT issues into the public consciousness at that point in time. And over the last 10 years, um, the context uh, of the issue and also public awareness has evolved um, a lot more social, um, a lot of attention on social media um, and activists coming out to talk about the experiences publicly has sort of made it a more mainstream topic. Um, Pink Dot, which is Singapore's annual LGBT pride rally, is in its 10th year. And as part of its iconic light up, which happened this year, um, the 2018 Pink Dot Ping Dot volunteers in July created a message in response to a government dragging its feet on change and, and said, we are ready. It's a beautiful image if you just Google it. It's, mm. it's, it's really, it's beautiful. And it just, you know, it started with, oh, I don't know, 300 people in 2007 or whatever, but literally thousands of people turn up at the event wow. um, now. Um, and oh. so the government stand so far has been, so far has been, oh, we'll just let the law stay on the books, but we won't enforce it. Mm. And so they're like, oh, we're kind of neutral. We want to listen to the majority who um, happen to be very conservative Christian people. It's an interesting dynamic in Singapore as well. Um, Yeah, but we won't enforce it. But obviously there are lots of issues, um, you know, because of that, because it's still illegal. And so people don't report sexual assault, for example, um, you know, they're afraid of telling their doctors what really happened. Mm. Um, there's a lot of social stigma. And as much as the government tries to pretend to be neutral, things like, um, <laughs> I don't know how many people know this, but this is a bit awful. Um, content on public TV can't show LGBTIQ relationships in a positive light. Mm. So they're okay to play <clears throat> movies like Brokeback Mountain because... Spoiler alert, something bad happens in the end. But, um, for example, uh, a kiss between a same-sex couple in in Glee, for example, was just completely censored. It just didn't even make sense when I watched it when I was in Singapore because there was just no flaw on in the in the plot. Oh, my gosh. Obviously. And so anything that sort of makes um, same-sex couples look happy and successful, no, the, the TV is not – it doesn't air on TV. Mm. Um, and I think in 2016 – um, a brief, very brief same-sex kiss um, was removed from a stage production of um, uh, Les Miserables after um, conservative Christians complained about it to the Media Development Authority. And that was a pretty big deal because it wasn't even like a, a steamy scene mm. or whatever. Um, but that's the situation in Singapore right now. So um, after India passed... Um, the, when when it handed down the Supreme Court re- ruling repealing the the law that criminalizes same sex um, same sex relationships no sex between 
men, basically, it sort of gained momentum again in Singapore. Mm-hmm. And so um, Ready for Repeal is the new campaign that's gaining so much momentum in the last few months. Um, the opposition has also equally grown, but it's it'll be really interesting to see how this changes in the mm. next few months or, you know, in a couple of years even. So I just wanted to put it out there and... If you have any Singaporean friends, um, you know, talk to them about it. Sign the petition online. It's called Ready for Repeal 377A. Um, and hopefully... So can I ask you something about that? Mm-hmm. When India, when that happened with the Supreme Court ruling, a mm-hmm. lot of people started talking about how um, homophobic laws were a colonial relic mm. and how prior to colonialism there hadn't been these kind of value judgments made about people's relationships and these laws that were really restrictive of same-sex couples and that sort of thing. Mm. Is that the same thing in Singapore? Because I'm mm. like, I've been reading a lot about um, homosexuality in Malaysia at the moment and the laws around that. Mm. Um, and that seems to have a sort of colonial um, echo behind it. So, Yeah. Mm. So, uh, yeah, it is, because Section 377 was introduced to India by the British in the 1800s, and the Indian Penal Code then became a model for the legal systems of British colonies, including Singapore. Mm. So the flow-on effect from the colonization in India affected countries around around it, basically. Um, yeah, which is a really interesting thing to think about, because now, you know, when, when India passed that law... Um, there was a lot of commentary about how India has finally joined the right side of history and has joined the mm. West in, in, you know, in more humane treatment of LGBTIQ people. And it's like, well, you kind of introduced it yeah. in the first place. And so interesting, I, you and I, oh, just punch my mic. <laughs> you and I were talking about this on the weekend mm. um, in terms of these movements in Singapore and India and also, like I was saying, Malaysia. Um, from a refugee law perspective... Mm these colonial laws that, you know, white people enforced in, I guess, Eastern countries, well, I don't know, in Mm. other countries, are now causing people to flee those countries and come to places like Australia Mm. to seek asylum because they can't be themselves under these... It's just, like, it's mind-boggling in its its destructiveness and Mm. its layers and layers and layers of trauma um, that colonisation continues to enact. Mm. Um, I mean, you can attribute a lot of things to colonisation, you know, um, in India itself, not just not just this, but, you know, casteism and colorism mm. and, um, and I guess... Mm, um, but specifically when it comes to the, the queer community, there's there's been a, a very layered culture in India for, for centuries about, you know... You know, transgender people. The um, the Hijras in India are one of the oldest surviving transgender community in the world. All of that existed before the British came in and introduced all these awful laws. And now the audacity to be like, "Oh, welcome to the right side of history." Mm. Mm. Very interesting. So we'll put the um, we'll put the petition up on our Facebook page, mm. I reckon, and people can sign it and share it. Um, is there anything else we can do um, in solidarity with people in Singapore? Mm, I mean, keep talking about it. I yeah, think. yeah. They need all the support they can they can get. Tilda, Melbourne's trans and gender diverse film festival is launching its 2018 program on October the 11th. The program runs from Thursday the 8th 
to Sunday the 11th of November at Footscray Community Arts Centre and celebrates the best trans and gender diverse cinema on offer, along with Q&A sessions with festival guests and opening and closing night events. Program details and tickets are available at tildamelbourne.com, a 3CR supporter. Join us for the launch of the 2019 How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary on Saturday the 6th of October from 3 to 6pm at The Old Bar, Johnson Street, Fitzroy. There'll be readings as well as music from Cold Hands, Warm Heart and Laura McFarlane. Entries free. Proceeds from the diary sales and 20% of the afternoon's bar takings will be donated to 3CR and the Rainforest Information Centre. So come read, drink and be merry. How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary launch. The Old Bar, Saturday 6th of October, 3 to 6pm. See you there. 3CR supporter. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with Ayan, Lauren and myself, Anya. 
<clears throat> Next up, we have Jamie Taylor Nilsson. Jamie works in music, radio, and television in Sydney. She's a voice actor for the ABC, co-director of Sydney Music Collective um, Coven, an all-nighter presenter at FBI Radio, and an events coordinator for Girls Rock Camp Sydney. She plays in Sydney femme punk band Hedy Lamar and co-directs Psych Fest Australia. So she's joining us over the phone today to talk about Women in Music Empowerment Day. WIMED 2018. WIMED returns in 2018 for an all-day inclusive event at Miss Peaches, Newtown, New South Wales on October 7th, celebrating and empowering women, non-binary people and minority groups in in the diverse music community. And WIMED donates proceeds raised each year to charities in the community that support young women in need. Um, Really, really exciting event. Thanks for joining us today, Jamie. No worries. Thanks so much for having me. Um, could you tell us about WIMED and how it all began? Um, yeah, so WIMED, it actually came together a couple of years ago. Coven uh, came on board last year, but it really was spearheaded by um, Deeper Than House and, yeah, the girls. Um, and it was started as a project to really just, like, create a platform and bring together all of the um, non-male people in Sydney in music, putting um, music events together, just a lot of collectives that were covering different genres. It was a way to kind of unite all of us and bring us in contact with each other and create um, kind of, like, uh, better networks between the collectives as well. Um, And now this is the, the third Women in Music Empowerment Day that is happening in Sydney, and I think it's only growing. It's getting really... It's getting really exciting. Mm, it looks huge. And who are the featured artists for this year's show? Um, this year's, there's actually a huge, huge lineup for this year's show. Um, some of the featured artists that uh, we are bringing together mm-hmm. um, are uh, there's uh, Harley Mavis, who's like a, quite an amazing breakout uh, Sydney artist, um, Deb, who is um, an Indigenous artist. Um, who she was a part of the Stolen Generation, um, and she tells her story um, through music, which is quite incredible. Um, there's uh, Janet Bess, a really incredible uh, Sydney hip hop artist, um, and there's there's heaps. There's a huge lineup as mm. well: Dente, Harley Mavis, Mothers Club, Good Pash. Um, so it really crosses. It's really crossing genres as well, which mm. is exciting. It's a yeah. really fun day. Mm. And I saw that there's also a live interactive panel organised as part of the show. Can you tell us about the panel? It is, yes. Um, This year, again, um, a really great uh, gal, Paige Lisi, is going to be um, hosting the panel. Um, But on the panel, we've got Heidi Lemper from um, Cloud Control. Um, mm-hmm. Uda Vidana Pasarana from Melon PR, um, Helena Ho from Audio Packs and Ibla Tonya Abrakasa, who's a DJ, um, and, and she's also got a really great podcast on FBI Radio, and she runs an event called Irregular Fit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a really, uh, last year the panel worked really, really well. It ended up being quite free form. Um, it was a really open space for discussion. Um, I enjoyed it because it was not a bunch of people who agreed with each other talking about the one issue, which is, you know, women are not represented properly in music and stuff. It was a group of people who I think aren't afraid to disagree, um, but the environment that women creates, um, I think, is quite special um, Mm. because it's a place where those disagreements are are presented in a a really really nice, respectful... uh, It's a safe space, basically, for that discussion to take place, and I think a lot of people come away from it... um, having educated themselves a little bit better, mm. um, which is really nice. Mm. 
And there's been a lot of noise about the the kind of harassment that female and non-binary artists face in the music industry and how often male artists often get away with appalling behaviour in general, but also specifically towards um, female artists. And this show is obviously a very good example of how we can push back and give these musicians a platform and a voice. Um, How else can we make the music and performance circuit a more inclusive one? Um, I think that believing women and believing trans people and believing non-binary people is a really great place to start. Um, I don't think it should be such an uphill struggle for people's stories to be believed or to be told because evidence suggests time and time again these things are happening. So I think firstly we need to accept that this stuff is happening even if you're not seeing it, even if it's not happening to you. Um, And that's particularly for male artists just need to put that guard down for a second and just need to put aside the, oh, but I've had so much fun with him in the past kind of attitude Mm. and believe these people's stories first and foremost. And then I think from there, it's not about necessarily, I think there is a lot of anger and I think that anger is absolutely justified. I think that we have to build in a from a positive place where we can and, and events like we made and events that, that champion and create a platform for voices that are non-male in the music industry and in, in the music um, world need to be need to be created it's about creating um, our own safe spaces and celebrating ourselves and and I think just like when you have the opportunities, give those sound engineer positions to people that are non-male, give those um, booking positions, you know, give those internships at your labels, things like that. Like I do think that um, we have to give those opportunities um, to people that aren't male when those, those opportunities arise so the industry can change. And I do think it is changing. Um, I think there is still an absolutely huge way to go. I think I don't think now it is just about... Um, women being represented, I think now we need to really look at like more from an intersectional perspective and go like, okay, yes, there are more women working in the music industry, but where uh, right, and then now we have to look at people who are non-binary, people who are trans, people of colour. Like there is still massive diversity issues in music that um, still need to be addressed, and mm. hopefully more events like Women. Um, will continue to address those and and some positive change can happen. Mm. Now, it sounds like a really, really good event and and the panel looks incredible as well. Um, Any plans to come to Melbourne soon? (laughs) I think, well, that's actually a really good idea. I think that Melbourne would embrace it in a way that, in a different way to Sydney. Um, I've put on events um, in Sydney and in Melbourne and um, there's a, a real joy in embracing music down in Melbourne that I think is slightly different to Sydney. Um, mm. And I'm, I'm really intrigued to see what a women in, in Melbourne would look like. Mm. It's beautiful. Yeah. Um, and where can listeners get tickets? Um, so if you go into the Women Facebook event, Women in Music Empowerment Day 2018, there's a ticket a link there. It's on Ticket Taylor. Um, otherwise, they can buy them at the door. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jamie, and all the best with the event. Thank you so much. If you want to hear us slam the atomic industry, then tune into the Radioactive Show on 3CR, 10am Saturdays. Special scientific relationship.
doesn't Destiny's Child always make you feel better? Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. We're joined on the line now by Melanie Schleiger, who is the Equality Law Program Manager at Victoria Legal Aid. Um, Thanks for joining us, Mel. Good morning. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you. So let's start with the current context of Legal Aid's work on sexual harassment um, and looking at how we can tackle it in the workplace. The Human Rights Commission recently released the results of some new research. And what in it was so concerning to you and to Legal Aid? Well, one of the most concerning um, things about the so it's the National Survey into Sexual Harassment um, in 2018, uh, and uh, the last survey was done in 2012, I believe. And the concerning thing about it is that the um, prevalence of sexual harassment appears to have increased. Either that or awareness of sexual harassment has increased. But in any event, um, the number of people reporting that they've been sexually harassed in the past five years has gone up. Um, So we know now that more than um, four in five Australian women and over half of Australian men over the age of 15 have been sexually harassed at some point in their lifetime. Those statistics are absolutely shocking. That's that is pretty much everyone we know. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Mm. Um, it, it really is. And there are some other really troubling uh, findings in the survey. Um, one of them is that uh, people who identify as gay or lesbian or bisexual, um, people with a disability, uh, and um, people who are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander all are more likely to experience or to have experienced sexual harassment than people who don't identify um, as having any of those attributes. Mm. Uh, So that's particularly concerning. Also, um, people who are poorer um, and young people are more likely to experience sexual harassment, Mm. which suggests that... There's Sorry. a real power issue um, at play there as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that what you've just said, exactly the power, that is really relevant to um, how you tackle it or, or what options people see um, to pursue it. So yes. what is the current system? Like how would you – what would you do currently if you were sexually harassed at work? How would you try and fix it? So currently the system um, really leaves it up to, up to you. Um, so if you experience sexual harassment at work, your options are to deal with it um, in in your workplace directly um, or with the perpetrator. Um, you could raise it with your boss, obviously, or the HR team. Um, and an employer is supposed to respond and take reasonable steps to... Um, address sexual harassment and prevent it from happening. Uh, if that isn't effective, and we know from this survey that in many cases it's not, um, I think there were about about 20% of um, respondents said that no, uh, no action was taken against the, the perpetrator um, or there were no consequences. Um, and about 45% of people said that there were no changes at their organisation as a result of the complaint. Mm. Um, so if things don't resolve at that stage, you can then make a complaint to 
the Australian Human Rights Commission or in Victoria, the Victorian Human Rights Commission, um, where matters are conciliated or go through a dispute resolution process. Um, and the outcome of that isn't enforceable. That's the process that um, is undertaken by agreement. Mm. Uh, if things don't resolve at that stage, you can pursue your complaint in court, um, which is obviously a, a formal process and can be um, a very expensive process. Um, and we would encourage people to get legal advice uh, before uh, at any stage. It, um, uh, we think it's really uh, important that people understand their legal rights and we have achieved really positive outcomes for people who've experienced sexual harassment. Um, so, so they're your options. Mm. The other option uh, is obviously to tell police if you've experienced um, sexual harassment that is sexual assault or rape. Um, and we know from this survey that uh, about a quarter of women um, have experienced sexual assault or rape in their mm. lifetime. Um, so, so it's not um, a throwaway line, it is appropriate in, in many circumstances to yeah. notify the police. And obviously then indicates that um, that some kind of stronger response or perhaps a response that um, better protects a victim or survivor is actually warranted um, in this in this space. Yes. Mm. Um, uh, that, that's spot on. And sorry, I should clarify that statistic about uh, that was a quarter, 23% of women have experienced actual or attempted rape or sexual mm. assault at some point in their lifetime. Um, yes, so this current system is completely flawed because it relies totally on the victim to enforce the law uh, and in the view of um, you know many discrimination lawyers and academics um, pretty much every <laughs> discrimination lawyer and academic who I've met at least, that's completely inappropriate. Mm. We, we don't expect employees to do that when it comes to other types of workplace safety issues. We have um, work health safety agencies in Victoria. We have um, WorkSafe dealing with those issues. Uh, it has the power to issue enforceable undertakings to employers. It has the power to investigate those um, workplace safety risks in a proactive way. Um, you know, if there's an, an incident where someone is injured, uh, it, it will send someone to investigate the systems of work and, and the situation and to prosecute the employer where they've fallen foul of their health and safety obligations. Um, it's the same with the Fair Work Ombudsman. Um, we have a, a regulator in the Ombudsman who can uh, prosecute uh, or uh, pursue employers in court where they've underpaid workers or, um, you know, for uh, scamming um, workers into enter, or entering um, independent contractor arrangements when really they're employees. So it's quite extraordinary that in respect of sexual harassment, such a widespread, such a serious issue, um, we take such a soft and pathetic approach mm. to addressing the issue. And it's getting worse. Yeah. I um, I was really taken with, I actually haven't been able to get out of my head when you and I were chatting um, last week, 
And you said to me, imagine if four out of five men were going to work every day and being injured in the workplace. Mm. Imagine the uproar. Imagine how quickly um, there would be a regulator or there would be some kind of enforceable, powerful body to protect them from that. And yet when it's primarily women who are being injured in this way in the workplace, we have, as you say, this weak and, and pathetic system. Yeah, it, it is. It, I mean, it's, it makes me angry. Mm. Um, and, I, and I look to the work health and safety agencies and they have the resources to conduct, um, you know, really large public education campaigns. They have really compelling ads on TV that um, leave you in tears. And I think, imagine if we had that for workplace sexual harassment and discrimination and imagine if we had you know they're doing some really interesting research into how to affect behavioral change at work how to how to change cultures what motivates people to behave in a um, safer way Uh, and uh, you know obviously we've got this survey uh, underway and an inquiry by the Australian Human Rights Commission at the moment into sexual harassment that's fantastic Um, But it seems as though we're investing a lot of resources into validating the fact that there is a problem. We know that there's a problem. We've known for decades that there's a problem. And we know that the approach that we're taking isn't working. It's seriously flawed. Mm. Um, So why not invest those resources into um, solutions and, and... ongoing sustainable um, solutions that can continue to improve our culture over time. It's not an individual issue, it's a cultural um, systemic issue. Yeah, absolutely. And so you've mentioned a few different ways that um, that this might play out, like how it could look um, maybe modelled on the Fair Work Ombudsman, that kind of prosecutorial body um, or investigative body, or then with the workplace health and safety organisations, that educative function there. Um, so legal aid's obviously, I don't know, doing a bit of a bit of hunting around, a bit of looking around. What do That's you right. see? Um, what's next for legal aid in this area? So we're talking to um, other other stakeholders who uh, do a lot of work in this area. We're really interested in exploring um, these options so that we can make recommendations to the Australian Human Rights Commission inquiry as to what we think would be um, the best model. I think there are, you know, a, a, a range of models that would be a significant improvement on what we have at the moment. Um, as you mentioned, you could look to WorkSafe, you look, can look to the Fair Work Ombudsman as um, potentially um, models to emulate. Um, whichever model is adopted, uh, you would hope that it would have at its disposal the full suite of regulatory tools to enable it to um, change workplace cultures and make them healthy um, and stop uh, intimidating predatory uh, sexual harassment at work. Uh, so that those those tools might be um, the ability to conduct large-scale large scale public education campaigns, um, the ability to investigate workplaces and enter into enforceable undertakings, um, and, and the ability to prosecute where employers uh, really do fall foul of their obligations. Uh, so, mm. yeah, that, that's what we see as 
um, the solution at this stage, but we are really interested to talk to um, other other organisations that are doing a lot of work in this area to um, to to see what the views of others are out there. Mm, absolutely, I think it's really. Um really important work you're doing and um and tuesday breakfast fully supports it um and hopefully we can have you back on um once you guys reach the next stages and hear more about the progress thanks Lauren. i really appreciate that and that would be wonderful mm, thanks so much Mel. have a great day you too thanks Lauren. And I'll just um, just say quickly, if that segment raised anything for anybody um, listening, there was some pretty heavy content. So you can give Lifeline a call on 131114. That is 131114. That was Melanie Schlager, Equality Law Program Manager at uh, Victoria Legal Aid, and you're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. A show. And that's just about all we have time for on Tuesday Breakfast. Stay tuned now for Accent of Women, the first of two parts in which Giselle Hanna explores Nazi, neo Nazi reemergence in Germany. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.